at uh, that I entitled The Paradoxical Nature of the Gospel, okay? The Paradoxical Nature of the Gospel. Uh, the reason why is simply because of the statements made in this passage. Uh, statements like, we have treasure in earthen vessels. You wouldn't put treasure in an earthen vessel. You know what an earthen vessel was in the first century? It was just a common container, kind of like something you'd buy at Walmart, okay? Some cheap Tupperware. And you wouldn't really put plates of gold into a cheap container. You'd probably find something suitable, something beautiful, something uh, of value, something uh, that uh, is durable and that can withstand maybe, uh, you know, the, the, somebody trying to break it and steal it. But this is not the way that God does things. God takes His treasure and puts it in earthen vessels, frail, fragile, seemingly worthless in and of themselves, vessels. And Paul says, this treasure, which is referring back to the glory of God, the glory of Christ revealed in the gospel, he has in his, in his person, in his body, in his life, in his heart. He's carrying the gospel in his life. It's in that context that God reveals his glory. And uh, so let's continue looking at this whole this whole subject of the paradoxical gospel. Why don't you pray one more time with me and we will begin, okay? Let's pray again. Uh, well, Father, um, again, we, we thank you so much for your word today. Lord, I thank you for just that fact, Lord, that we are not disqualified from bearing your treasure because we're weak, because we're fragile, Lord, because we easily break under pressure. Father, we thank you that you have entrusted the gospel to us. Like the Apostle Paul told Timothy that you have given us a deposit, a sacred trust in the gospel. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be responsible ambassadors of Christ. That you would help us to be those that understand the treasure that we, can, that we hold that resides within us because of your Spirit. And Father, today I pray that you would just show us again, lift the veil from our eyes and help us to see the truth behind all of our trials, the truth behind all of our suffering, the truth behind all of our adversity and all, of our, all the opposition that we face in this life. I pray that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is sort of the third principle also that I'm, I'm bringing up here, and that is that the gospel is working not just uh, through human frailty, not just in human weakness, but also now through death. That's the language of this text that Paul is showing that even in death, God is manifesting his life. What could be more paradoxical than that, right? Life that through death comes life, that our death means other people's lives, so that our death produces life in an analogous way to the way that Jesus, in his death, produced life. This is just amazing, the way that God does it. It's the complete opposite of what the world would do. You know, if you sat down in a room to sit and try to contrive some sort of religious system, I doubt that you would begin by saying, you know what, we will bring people unspeakable life, beautiful life, through death. <laughs> you know, I don't think we'd do it that way if we had 
if, if we had it our way. But God is not like us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are above our ways, as Isaiah declares. And so Paul here is going to give us several principles again to sort of draw this out, to demonstrate how it is that God is working through death. That in the face of death, in the face of persecution and suffering, everything that he's listed in verses 8 and 9, how that we are susceptible because we're weak, because we're frail, we are susceptible to those things. Affliction. And because we're afflicted, if left to ourselves, we should be crushed. But because God is involved, we're not crushed. We're protected. We are kept. We persevere. We are preserved by the power of God. And so Paul now says that he is working his life out through that context of suffering. He's working that life out through that suffering. Well, first, I want to show you the principle that he gives us here, the principle of Christian identity. That is to say that the reason we suffer is because of our identity with Christ. Look at verse 10 one more time. He says, we are always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. You see that? that? So there is a connection between the Lord Jesus and ourselves. That by virtue, if you want to get technical, by virtue of your salvation, because you have been united to Jesus Christ by faith, God has put you together with Him. He has crazy glued you to Jesus Christ by His Spirit. Something more powerful than glue. It's, uh, it's, something, it's a bond that's much more sacred than the bond of any man-made material. It is the bond of His eternal covenant that He has covenanted together to join us to His Son, that He has His plan of redemption. And from all eternity, God has decided to join us to His Son. Just amazing. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, just to show you that reality, that this is not just something that God did off, on the fly. This is not just something that God just thought of, you know, the spur of a moment. But this is according to God's eternal plan, His eternal purpose. I don't know how far, far back your mind can go, but my mind can't go any further back into eternity. I just can't fathom it. I can't understand it. I, there's only so far I go, and then my brain just, it'll pop. It'll blow a fuse, right? But God said that from all eternity, He had chosen us. Look at verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. We know this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the same idea. In union with Christ. In a dynamic where you are joined to Jesus Christ, inseparable from Christ. So that you can say, if you're in Christ, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. There's nothing you can think of that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not Islam. If you're a missionary on the mission field and persecution is a reality for you. Not trials. Not marital difficulty. Not financial crisis. Not physical affliction. Nothing, the Apostle Paul says, not even death 
can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's why very quickly union with Christ became my pet peeve doctrine. And I talked about that a few weeks ago. A preacher should not preach his pet peeve doctrine. Well, I'm sorry. I'll confess ahead of time. I probably will preach my pet peeve doctrine because look at what it says. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is given to us because of union with Christ. There's not one blessing that you can think of that you have today that didn't come to you without union with Christ. Nothing. Justification is because of union with Christ. Sanctification is because of union with Christ. Your future glorification in heaven is because of of union with Christ. That will be union with Christ come to full, full circle, come to fruition, materializing right before your very eyes so that faith will turn into sight and you will see it. That is because of your union with Christ. He goes on, though, to explain when this took place. Just as He chose us in Him, there's that critical little phrase, right? In Him, this little small prepositional phrase, so much theology jam-packed in there, right? In that little phrase. Everything explodes out of that. And He says, before the foundation of the world. See that? Before, literally, the Greek the Greek language literally says before the building blocks of life were laid down, God had already united you to Jesus Christ in His plan, in His eternal decrees, in His sovereign purposes. And, and if you don't stand back and just stand in awe of that and just marvel in that, you're missing the point of the whole passage. Because look what he goes on to say. What is is the purpose of this? To the praise of the glory of His grace. That's why we should enjoy our eternal election. To the praise of the glory of His grace. That's why. And because of that union, in real time and space, it never ends for the Christian. I have so many people tell me, I was a Christian just recently. This week I had somebody tell me, um, I was at UNT. Sorry I keep using UNT, but I go there every week. I'm just, I have such a compassion, such a heart for these college kids up there. I had a, a girl come up to me after everything was done and I was exhausted from open-air preaching. She comes up to me, this, this, this sweet young girl, you know. She goes, can I talk to you about epistemology? Just a light conversation and stuff, right? Okay. She says, can you please come to our atheist club? She said, because the guy that teaches it used to be a Christian like you. And now he's teaching us, you know, the truth <laughs> about atheism, right? And I told her that what the Bible teaches is, no, he was never a Christian. According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, he left us because he was never of us in the first place. You see? So in real life, in real time, real time and space, this union, this principle of union with Christ comes to fruition in every one of our lives because from now on, we are identified with Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter, ver- chapter 1, verse 24, this is the way that Paul puts it. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. You see how it has everything to do with suffering. This is Paul always talking about suffering? It's kind of a morbid kind of guy or what? No, it's just realism. It's reality, right? 
And, and, if, and if you're just young and maybe you've not suffered a whole lot in your life up to this point, trust me, suffering is coming. It's inescapable. You won't be able to escape the trials of this life. They are promised to us by God Himself. Jesus said that in John 16:33. Trials are coming for us. They're coming. The best thing that we can do is to prepare to suffer in a godly way and not throw up our hands and say, oh man, how could God let this happen? What are you talking about? God told you it would happen ahead of time so that you could fortify yourself, so that you could secure yourself, equip yourself, protect yourself from the wiles of the devil that likes to come in and discourage you when you're beat down because of some trial or some, some issue going on in your life, and Satan wants to beat you down and stuff you down into a corner and get, force you down into the fetal position where you could just give up on everything. The Apostle Paul says, God comforts the depressed. He knew what it meant to be depressed. Many of the letters that he wrote, he wrote in prison. That's why suffering is such a common context for Paul. He says, in my flesh I do my share, this Colossians 1.24 still, he says, to, in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is his church, in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now at first glance you read that and you go, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What could possibly be lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Didn't he do it all? Didn't he say on the cross, it is finished? Well, these afflictions are not atoning afflictions. These afflictions are not salvific aff afflictions in the sense that it is not through the suffering of Paul that he would obtain salvation. His, his suffering is not for atonement. His suffering is for the sake of the gospel. But it brings up a bigger issue here. That as a believer, we are identified with Christ, and by virtue of that, we are identified with suffering for His sake. We are identified for suffering as a Christian, as somebody who claims to be identified with Christ. And being identified with Christ just may cost you everything, may cost you your family, may cost you your marriage, it may cost you a job, it could cost you a ministry position. It, it could cost you all sorts of trouble because people don't like the straight and narrow. People don't like a, a staunch devotion to the Lordship of Christ. But I remind you of what Jesus taught. You know, he didn't just teach the good things, uh, things that people want to hear. Jesus was not a seeker-sensitive pastor, okay? Jesus told the whole truth. The whole truth, whether people liked it or not, whether his own disciples liked it or not. Matter of fact, they didn't like it. Just read John chapter 6. After he told them, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they were so perplexed, they were like, everyone just left because you said that. And he knew that they were wavering, so he asks them, will you leave too? And they threw up their hands and said, Lord, only you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Listen to what Jesus said, referring to the, the cost of following him. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, and he, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that will save it. For what is what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The NIV says he loses or forfeits his very self. It's a very strong reflexive construction to say, look, who you really are, the very thing you're trying to save in this life, which is your life. Who wants to die? I don't want to die. I want to live forever. I don't know about you. Does that sound, does that sound greedy to you? It shouldn't. God gave you a will to live. God, gave, God put that within you, that you don't want to die. Death is an enemy. I am just so amazed at people who sit and stand and tell me, what's wrong with death? Death is natural. Death is normal. I'm actually looking forward to it because I'm going to go back into, back into the earth and replenish the, the soil. What? That's what do you think life is about? Listen, I don't want to die. Death is an enemy that will be destroyed by Jesus. And so Jesus says, look, if you, try to, if, you, if you try to save your life, if you live for self-preservation, you will lose your life. But if you f- hate your life, if you forsake your life, for my sake, you will keep it for eternal life. Jesus goes on to say, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you think that Christianity is just, you know, a life of easy street, and you're unwilling to bear reproach for the name of Christ, you are not worthy to be his disciple. In John chapter 12, he says, again, whoever loses his life and whoever hates his life in this world, he will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives us perhaps one of the most politically incorrect things you could ever say. If you're trying to gain people's favor, maybe like the politicians we see right now, trying to gain everybody's vote, right? You wouldn't talk like this. (laughs) Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. That's a parallel passage to Matthew's gospel where he says, don't think that I came to bring peace in the earth. No. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and how do I wish it was already kindled? What's he talking about? He says, and I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished, referring to the cross. Do you suppose, he says, that I came to grant peace on the earth? Well, it's here in this text too. He says, I tell you no, but rather division. (laughs) He's going around telling people, I am going to cause division. That's just not a way to rally people around you. He says, for from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I know a lot of people can say, well, yeah, I know a lot of mother-in-laws that are really hard to, you know. That's not what he's talking about, personality problems. He's saying by virtue of whether or not you identify yourself with me, it may cost you the closest relationships around you. Do you really want to be my disciples? And brothers and sisters, our response must be, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's it. 
Every Christian's life is cruciform in nature. We are called to bear the cross in our own lives, to carry the cross in our own lives, to be willing to follow Jesus on that Calvary road, to suffer for the sake of Christ, being identified with Christ. That's the second thing. The principle not only of the principle of being identified with him, but literally suffering for his sake. Now look how this works in verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. I love the way that Paul phrases things, right? Clearly wants you to see the death and life antithesis. We who live always die. What? That's why I entitled this, these messages, The Paradoxical Nature of the Gospel. He says, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That's the key. It's not just being delivered over to death for any sake. Listen, everyone's going to die, but only some people will die for Jesus' sake. But what's extraordinary about this whole thing is that he's not just referring to, uh, he's not just referring to physical death. Everyone is going to die physically. But he's talking about a daily death. As he goes on to say later, I die daily. All day long, he says, we are being handed over to death. Constantly being delivered over to death. And so what does that look like? It looks like being put in prison for the gospel, for the Apostle Paul. It looks like going through life's trials. The whole litany of sufferings that you find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that is death on display. Matter of fact, he'll go, he'll go on to say right here in this, in this chapter, just a couple verses down, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. So yes, we are succumbing to the radical effects of the fall, Right? What does Romans say? Death is reigning. And I get reminded of that too often. Death is reigning. I get reminded of that every time I wake up and I go through you know, aches and pains in my own body. I go, man, why has it got to be like this? Death is reigning. That's right. Death is reigning. This is the period of, of time for death to reign, as it were. I'm so, gladful that, I'm so grateful that Jesus is going to put an end to death. Aren't you? I'm so grateful for that. But Paul was appointed to suffer. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, maybe in a different context, he says, verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, watch this, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. That is in Rome. That is in prison. God had appointed him for that. That was a big division in the Philippian church, you know that? And in Rome, that was a big division. Whether or not Paul was suffering for his own foolishness or suffering for Christ. Some people would not back him up when he was in prison. They refused to acknowledge that his imprisonment was, was, was godly. That his imprisonment was for the sake of, of God and, and for the sake of the gospel. They were refusing to identify themselves with him. But he said, you know, there are some, they preach, the, the, they preach Jesus right. They know that I'm appointed for the, the defense of the gospel. They don't question his imprisonment. They don't question his imprisonment. But look also how this works. It is 
precisely through this suffering that the life of Christ will be manifested. He says that although it's true that Christ did not sort of stand to gain from the death of the Apostle Paul as if he somehow benefits from it, nevertheless, he uses it to his advantage. He says, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In our mortal flesh. And therefore, he understood precisely because of his weakness that God was strengthening him, that God was going to shine through him, that God was going to manifest his life through that suffering. And through your suffering and through mine, if you don't suffer for your own foolishness, if you don't suffer for your own sin, lots of people suffer for their own sin and their own foolishness, and Peter says, that's not what I'm talking about. Peter says, when you suffer according to the will of God, you do it unto His glory. You do it unto His glory. And God was manifesting His life through this suffering. He was manifesting His power. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Who strengthens me. He says in chapter 3, you remember earlier in chapter 3 here of 2 Corinthians, verse 4, he says, such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider that anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See, it's God shining through these sufferings, through this trial, through all of it. And He called us to this very, very thing. God is at work in our lives. You've got to cling to that promise right there, that through your sufferings, God is working. God is manifesting His power through your afflictions. It's a very strange thing, the Christian life. When you think you're at your lowest point, you're actually at your highest. Because God is at work. This is what he told the, the Ephesians. Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 18. Again, he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of his strength and his might. That's what's at work in the believer's life. That's why we don't have to crumble under our trials. Because if we suffer, we suffer and we obtain an unspeakable blessing of being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ... You are blessed. Does that remind you of anything? That's what Jesus taught the disciples, right? He told them that in Matthew 5. He said, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all sorts of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're in good company if you suffer ridicule for Christ's sake. If your family members end up hating you because you so love the Lord Jesus Christ, you so identify with the Lord Jesus Christ that you don't care what people think about you, and people end up persecuting you because of that, you are blessed. There's an audience in heaven who is applauding and cheering you on, just like they did the prophets. There's a great cloud of witnesses, and you're in an elite society of the people of God, and you are blessed. Matter of fact, Peter goes on to say, 
the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know what's amazing about that? Is that he's, he's, he's quoting out of Isaiah to prove this. And that quotation out of Isaiah is to substantiate Jesus' messianic call. That the spirit of the Lord would be upon him, would rest upon him. That was one of his own self-designations that he was the Messiah. Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And in a similar way, his people, Christians, believers, we have the Spirit resting upon us too. Keeping us, protecting us, empowering us, blessing us. We have his favor. We have his protection. It's just amazing. Now, here's the last thing. The third thing is this. The principle of life working through death. Look at verse 12. He sums it all up. He says, so death works in us, but life in you. So Paul sort of summarizes all these different statements, okay? His death, again, not to mistake it, is not salvific. Paul didn't save anybody by dying for them, okay? Jesus did. But on a secondary level, this is the means that God has chosen to bring that salvation to the world, to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus told him. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, he told him, I'm appointing you to suffer and to be a witness to the Gentiles. He appointed him a preacher to the Gentiles. So Paul's sufferings strengthen his people. And here, Paul says his sufferings, his death, as he calls it, brings life to God's people. It's, it's amazing because it's deeply evangelical. This is how the gospel is going to spread it's through suffering. God is not going to spread the gospel by overturning the nations of the world, hijacking all of, the, all of the armies of the world, taking charge of all the nuclear facilities of the world, and then pointing nuclear weapons at all of God's enemies and overthrowing planet Earth. That's not how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through the suffering, through the blood of His people. As they lay down their life, and bring the gospel to an unreached people group, to bring the gospel to people through pain and suffering. This is the way that God has always done it. This is the way that God will always do it. It's through the suffering of the church that the church is called to further the gospel. What did he tell the apostles before he commissioned them? He says, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Amazing. Our calling is amazing. He said this very thing to the Ephesians in uh, Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 2 that um, Paul's sacrifice that he made on behalf of his people was for their salvation, if you would, for their coming to faith. Listen to what he says. He says, but even if I am poured out, this is Philippians 2.17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. That's amazing. His suffering, all of his trials, everything he went through in his, 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 his missionary journeys was for the service of their faith. That is to bring them to faith. That's why he's an apostle. Romans chapter 1, he says that very same thing. The reason I'm an apostle, he says, is to bring about the, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. That's the reason he ministered. 
but it's in the context of this lowly body. And so, you know, I love it because the Bible is so utterly honest, isn't it? We're weak. My dear friends, we are in a mortal body, mortal flesh, he calls it. That's a really crude way of talking in the ancient world about your body. He's trying to get the point across. Your body, frail as it is, racked with pain as it may be, filled with disease as you may be, with this condition or that condition or this disease or that disease, breaking down as it is, susceptible to all these afflictions as you may be, that is what God is using to produce life in the church. Life in the church. That's why the Apostle Paul was willing to die so that the church could live. He was willing to lay down his life so that he could erect churches in every city. He was willing to be treated like a vile criminal so that he could produce pure churches, apostolic churches to the glory of God. And so this whole thing has a reflexive effect, doesn't it? Yes, there's death. Yes, Paul was just a man. Yes, Paul was beaten down. Yes, Paul was persecuted. Yes, Paul ultimately was martyred in Rome, probably by Nero and probably by being beheaded. But he accomplished his mission. He fulfilled his course. It's like Paul says in the book of Acts. We all have a purpose that we're working out for God. It says in Acts chapter 14 that after David fulfilled his purpose, he died. See, we are, we're going to fulfill our purpose in this life, and then we're going to die. And that's, that's it. And so my passion in life is how do I get myself in line with God's purpose? How do I live my life in such a way that I don't waste it, but that I use it to fulfill what God has called me to do, and so that when I die, my death counts my life counted. I didn't waste my life. Sorry that's so John Piper-ish, but he's, he's right. No wasted lives. I just remember meeting this young girl we were out witnessing at Southlake uh, several months ago and just came up to her like we would with anybody to give her a track or something. I said, you know, here you go. What, uh, what are you doing here? Oh, just hanging out. Oh, who are these guys, your friends? She's like, oh, I just met them. What? They're just sitting there, hanging out, playing guitar. She came out to Texas to marry someone, and a fiancé. didn't work out. And so now she literally just told us, I'm just wandering around finding, looking for friends in Texas. What? That's your life? You're just kind of wandering around aimlessly trying to find a startup by yourself? I told you, you have any family here? No. You know, just real hippie, real, real fast and loose, and just real a free spirit, right? God doesn't want us to be like that. He doesn't want us to be aimless, walking around, not knowing what we're doing with our lives. No sense of calling, no sense of vocation, no sense of purpose, no aim in life, no goals in life. Absolutely not. We, of all people, should have goals. We should have aims. We, have, we should have resolutions. Read the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Some people don't like them. Some people think they're, they're too extreme. I would be grateful if teenagers... Uh, all around the world have those kind of resolutions. You know, he wrote most of his resolutions when he was a teenager. One of his resolutions that he wrote that I'll never forget, he says, resolved to live with all my might while I live. What a great resolution. 
that we don't waste our life, that we live it for the glory of Christ. And when we live that way, because Paul lived that way, he had one passion. He was motivated and driven by one goal, and that is to further the cause of the gospel. That's what he tells the Philippians. His imprisonment resulted in the the furtherance of the cause of the gospel. And he doesn't wait around for us either to find find our vocation. He tells the Philippian church, look, imitate my example. That doesn't mean everyone be a missionary. Everyone be an apostle. Well, we can't be apostles, so that's out. But we're not even all called to be missionaries or pastors or evangelists. But to some degree, we are all called to live to see the gospel furthered. And how do we do that? But by our commitment and our devotion and our participation in the local church. We talked about church membership. You know what church membership should be called? I shared this with a few people. It should be called church partnership. I know that kind of sounds seeker sensitive, but think about it. Paul, I know it does, but it's true. It's not that just you're a member. A member can mean anything. Oh, I'm a member now, so I get certain perks like Costco, right? I get a membership card, and I get certain advantages. I can go to Costco, and you can't. But it's more than that. Church membership is a partnership, a participation. And that's what Paul uses throughout the book of Philippians. Read the book of Philippians again. He uses that word koinonia, fellowship, participation. Wouldn't that change everything about our church if everyone came in here understanding, hey, I'm a partner. I'm in a partnership with this church. I'm not just a member here. Members can just sit on the sideline and not do anything. But if you're a partner, what if Costco told you you're a partner with Costco? Well, right? Great. But that would imply certain responsibilities now, not just benefits. And that's how we can live like this. We can live like Paul. If we take our participation in the gospel serious and say, what needs to be done? What needs to be done in the church so that we can further this gospel? What needs to be done so that we can make sure that our church is doing more to get the gospel out? Are we supporting any missionaries? How much of our money is going towards evangelism? Those things are important so that our church can glorify God and, and, and function in a healthy way as it ought to. I'm just so excited because that means there's an opportunity for every one of us. No one's left out. I know that in in the evangelical church right now, and sadly in a lot of reformed churches even, you have this mentality that, well, the minister does all the real stuff. We just kind of sit by, we sit, we listen, we come, but that's it. You know, if you want to engage in any real significant ministry, well, then you need to be either in full-time ministry or you need to be a pastor. But other than that, you know, what I do in the local church is just not really important. That's not true. That's not true. That's a whole other sermon, and I won't do that to you. Let's pray, and um, we will conclude our service. Father, I really have tried my hardest to convey over the last two weeks, Lord, the nature of the gospel and how to us it may seem very mysterious how it works. For us, we may only see the bad. We may only see the death. We may only look into our lives and see uh, weakness. But the Apostle Paul assures us that God is glorified in our weakness. 
He's glorified through weakness. God loves to take weak and adequate people and call them to do amazing things for His glory. And oh God, would you make it so that every church member wants to participate in that and not just sit in the sidelines. God, but that really wants to strive together for the furtherance of the gospel and work together for the unity of the church and strive together with one mind, one purpose. Father, this is only something that you can do. And so we just lay it at your feet. We commit it to you. Thank you for your word today, God. We pray uh, that you be glorified uh, in our time of fellowship and in our meeting. In Jesus' name, amen.